Okay, so we're going to ask our, our panel to come up here for a few more minutes. And we're going to talk in this next section. We're going to spend a little bit of time at the beginning here uh, talking about, I know many of you want to know what to grow for market. Uh, and, and so I thought we could... I thought we could take just a few minutes. We can't spend a lot of time on this, but if you were, if you were um, counseling somebody, the most um, lucrative crops to grow for market, what would be your top five? The, the top five recommended crops to grow. And if you have specific varieties, you can mention that as well. Um, I, I didn't give them warning on this, so where's, let's see, I guess we're just missing Alan. I trust he's, oh, what has worked for you? And obviously we're, we're coming from different parts of the country, uh, especially Brad's, uh, you know, the West Coast is kind of its own country, but um, some of you are from out that way, but what, what things work best for your markets? It's probably more similar than, than we realize. I'm probably going to say something that I wish, I'll come back and say, oh, I should have said that. Um, but off the top of my head, we grow salad mix, and it does extremely well. It is laborious in, in a sense, but the salad mix has priceless. Uh, um, so that's the first one. The second one that I would say is that, that tomatoes, and I know that there's a timing to that, but specifically tomatoes are heirloom tomatoes that you want to eat. In my opinion, the black tomatoes are so superior that if people will try them, you can charge more for them because they will want them. And uh, they can be more complicated to grow and less productive. So those, those are two things that I think uh, people really will buy. Um, carrots sell like hotcakes. Um, anything that nobody else seems to be able to grow. <laughs> and there's some, in certain regions, there's certain things that people say you can't grow. And, and if you can capitalize on that, people will typically come to your booth for that and then you sell them everything else because they're already there. Um, you know, my wife would advocate for herbs because nobody wants to sell herbs for a dollar a bunch. But they'll come buy your herbs and then they'll buy your carrots and your potatoes and your everything else. So, you know, I'm not going to say herbs, but she would. Um, so that's three. The fourth one I would put on the list is probably chard. Um, you may have to sell it at first, but it, if you do rainbow chard, it's spectacular at the booth, and it just excites people. And uh, if you give them recipes and they try it, they will love it, and they'll come back for the chard. Um, who said purslane? Is my oh, Daniel. <laughs> yeah. Um, and a fifth one, oh, probably onions. They sell like hotcakes as well. Um, but timing on some of this stuff and, and, and being smart about how you market it is really the key. 
Because if you just grow them when everybody else grows them, you may find you just sit with a glut of food that's perishable. So you, you have to be sort of wise in your marketing and your, and in your mark, are we talking about marketing in a minute too? I'll leave this off for that and let pass this on. All right, this is a, a really good question. Uh, and um, you know, answering it appropriately is going to depend on your circumstance. So bear in mind that what you hear from us is, is what our experience and circumstance is. And, and uh, it, it's very important, though, to pay attention to what those five things are that are going to be best for you. And as you start your gardening experience, you know, look deeply into those issues in your first couple of years so that you can identify which direction you want to go. I've been working with Dr. Lewis Jett at the University of uh, West Virginia uh, University on this very issue. And uh, I've been keeping some really uh, close records on our production, and he's been doing it kind of on a statewide basis. And fortunately, our lists kind of agree. So, you know, for our circumstance, West Virginia, small-scale uh, market farming, far and away the most profitable crop. And by profitable, what I mean is not just growing one crop, selling that crop, and getting the most for it, but some of these crops you can do successfully, like the, 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 the salad mix that, that Larry does. It's how you use the ground. What's our return per square foot? Uh, far and away, the best are cucumbers. Cucumbers, in terms of their potential for yield and the price that you get for them, are far and away the best crop that, that we grow. And it's almost twice as good as anything else. And this fits the WVU um, uh, uh, information, too, that we've looked at. Uh, second, and I'm really happy about this, is what I would consider the only plant I would grow, if I could only grow one plant in my garden, the number two moneymaker is the second one in profitability, and that's kale. It takes a little while to develop markets for kale. It's, ta it's taken us actually about three years to develop markets for kale, but now that we have those markets, uh, based on the productivity of the kale, again, per square foot, and the amount that it produces and what we get in terms of price, it's number two. Uh, number three is lettuce, and lettuce should be a part of every small grower's mix because lettuce is something that people will buy every week. Folks are accustomed to eating salads. Now, we don't grow iceberg lettuce. Uh, we're, we're talking about romaines and, and red leaf lettuce and green leaf lettuces here. Uh, but lettuce is very popular in the market. And any time we have lettuce, we sell out of it because that's something that people are accustomed to using and we'll use every day. Uh, fourth, I would agree with Larry that the heirloom tomatoes are excellent. Uh, and uh, in fact, nationwide last summer, um, uh, and this is according to the USDA marketing statistics, the average price per pound for an heirloom, to heirloom tomato midsummer at the height of, of the season was $5.04 a pound. Whoa. Now, when you consider that, that some of those tomatoes can weigh a pound and a half, two pounds, we've even grown some that weighed over four pounds, that's pretty remarkable. Now, I'm not saying you're going to get that price at your, at your local farmer's market, but it is an indicator of the value of that crop. And uh, one of the advantages in, in having high tunnels or using some form of cover, at least in the eastern uh, part of the country, is that you can grow much better quality without some of the, uh, the issues that affect heirloom tomatoes. They are susceptible to late blight. They are susceptible to skin cracking with fluctuations in, in humidity and moisture. So you want to protect those a little bit. The other crop that a lot of folks don't think about, uh, but has been a good one for us, are the winter squashes. Uh, 
Now, they're not huge in terms of their return per square, uh, per square foot compared to our rotation crops because that's a longer season crop. Uh, but if you've got uh, uh, you know, space that, that you don't need to put into success, rapid successive production, some of the winter squashes are really good. And the one that we've had really good success with are the kabocha squashes. Uh, we grow a variety of kabocha called uh, scarlet kabocha. Johnny Seed sells it as sunshine kabocha. Once people eat those, they're hooked. Uh, once you've had one, uh, you will never go back to butternut squash or, or any of the other squashes. It's really wonderful. And, uh, you know, we get a good price for that. They're very productive, and it's, it's one that, that, that we do well with. As, and, and also the butternut squashes, too, fit into that category. That's, that's our fifth most profitable item. And we do have walnuts, and it's a good crop. It's, uh, for organic walnuts right now, it's, it's a fabulous crop. Um, and so we do have those. Uh, we also have prunes. We've been growing prune sugar plums for a long time. The prune plums, and now it's called sugar plums. It used to be called prunes in the marketplace because people like sugar plums better. So we've been doing those all my life. Uh, we took out an orchard in 1967 that was planted in 1917. That was our last hand-picked orchard. And ever since then, we machine-picked. So that's a dried fruit. We grow for dried. It's really good fresh. Uh, but the, the fluctuations in production can be, you know, we, over the years, sometimes we've got lower production on those and sometimes good production. And as far as, so that's, that's, that's been a good steady crop for us, real, real flat, real steady. There's no real big fluctuation in sales. It just kind of goes just like that. So we can know what to count on pretty much with those. Um, and then our vegetable crops, we've, our, our mix, uh, we don't do farmer's markets or um, um, CSA, we've done toy. We played with a little few of those. Hasn't been real effective for us. So we pack everything and we ship wholesale. And in the crops we grow, we've kind of narrowed down. We used to have a broad range of crops. You know, a large. You know, we've grown some kales and and actually, you mentioned kales. I went to we went to visit some of our buyers and, and we out, sat down with them. He says, he says, you got any kale? And that was a big item at the time. So, and we used to grow that. But then when the leafy green thing came, we kind of. It wasn't a real effective thing for us. So we grow um, heirloom tomatoes and Roma tomatoes, zucchini squash, and some of the scallop squash and cucumbers. That's an eggplant we've kind of phased out of just because we don't have enough area. Eggplant's been fairly good, and we pack all those in, in boxes and pallets and, and ship them to brokers or, or distribution points and grocery stores. And Portland's a great market. We ship some stuff up there. We ship some stuff to San Francisco, and but those 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 are our mix pretty much. And like you said, you know the heirlooms have been really good. Uh, they're tougher to grow, and that's maybe the reason people ask why they're so expensive. In my opinion, it takes it takes twice as much to grow them and you get half the crop, because sometimes they don't produce very good. Now, if you if you're growing like the the Cherokee Purple compared to say the Brandywine, I mean it's. it's it's almost double. You get the production of Cherokee purples is huge, but your costs are the same to produce them. So, but people like a blend. We'll do a mixed pack or various things. In fact, you know, when the market's good, we'll ship, we'll ship to the East Coast. You know, put them on an airplane. We don't do that very often, but occasionally they'll go come over here to wherever you guys are. <laughs> but anyway, that's some of our mix. That's been effective for us. What we do, we'll we'll get together because I used to do all my own sales. But now I only do some of I only do my, my prunes and walnuts, which are my tree crops. And I have a broker that does um, 
helps me with the, the vegetable sales. So we'll just sit down with him and say, okay, how's it look this year? And we'll kind of go through our mix and try to make changes if we need to. He's helped us go like this to narrow it down to the ones that are most effective. Okay, Alan. Three. Yeah, I was just going to say, for time's sake, just add any new ones yeah. that haven't been mentioned. Spinach. Are people like spinach? Hacker eye turnips. That's another good thing in Oklahoma. People like, oh, I want some turnips, you know, <laughs> kind of thing. And they boiled turnips. You know, we had this one guy. He's like, oh, those are the sweetest turnips that have ever passed my lips, you know, kind of thing. And, you know, that's what you want to hear uh, from these people. Um, but, you know, man, I want to come to your farm. Like walnuts and plums, man, <laughs> okay, you're making me look bad with turnips. But uh, anyways, those are ones that, that have sold really well for us. And the variety factor, the more variety when you're selling direct to the consumer, you want to be like a supermarket. Uh, some people say a lost, there was this one marketer guy, he's like, you know what, a lost, you know, you've heard of lost leaders. He's like, the only thing good about, he's like, well, no, he didn't say anything good. He says, the truth is about a lost leader is they're lost. That's all there is to them. You know, you don't want to grow something that's not making you money. But um, within selling direct to consumers, it's the variety that attracts them. People don't just want to come for tomatoes and cucumbers. They want to get lettuce, kale, all this stuff. And we find that very effective. It's boost our sales. The only things I would add, you know, so I'm dittoing what the others have said. But the only things I would add are beets. We have found a great market for beets. We, it really surprised us. Um, and then the other, which is kind of a different, diff, a whole different group, but berries. Any kind of berries. People, you know, I, I heard a, a CSA market or a CSA grower once say, you know, I can list 50 different kinds of vegetables that we grow. But if I say strawberries, they say, sign me up. You know, so people love berries, strawberries, blueberries, blackberries, raspberries, which brings up a whole issue that we need to address with the spotted wing drosophila. Um, anyway, we can maybe talk about that tomorrow. So I think you saw some common ground there. I, I, I think that's a good place to start with what to grow. And now we're going to kind of switch gears to marketing. And again, there's so much that could be said, but I've asked Nick and Kirsten, who are kind of our marketers, to share some things that they have found. And then Bob Gregory is also going to share a little bit about a unique uh, market that he's found with the farm to school. So, and we'll see if there's time at the end, we can have more panel discussion on it. If uh, maybe you could flip the light switch closest to the camera behind you back there in the booth, it'll turn out the front lights. You can see the screen a little better. So we're gonna leave the growing side for a few minutes and talk about some of the nuts and bolts of marketing and particularly farmers markets in your display. Those are the things that I really love to do. And farmers markets in all of our growing experience, we actually started out, you know, 14, 15 years ago going to farmers markets and it was not a success. But things have changed through the years and the last three years we have been doing this market um, near us an hour away 
And what started out to be just a place where we could sell our excess produce, now we earn over half of our income from the farmer's market, and particularly our one markets. So some tips that we have, we have um, experienced for ourselves and seen in other people's booths, try to make it as attractive as possible. When you have multiple farmers, your booth has to stand out. So you have to set it apart in some, some way. Make it unique, something different from the rest. Tablecloths, it's, it's amazing how, how many farmers we see show up in market with mismatched tablecloths, you know, not straight at all. Display is something that's very important to people. They want to buy their produce from a stand that, that looks reputable and like they actually know what they're doing. And so matching tablecloths. Um, also, a non-distracting design. Now, this could be debatable with our design, but part of it was branding, and for us, these are the tablecloths that we chose a few years ago. Also, adequate length. We hide a lot of stuff under our tables, so if you make your tablecloths long, you can hide a lot of your, your bins and all the stuff that has to go to market, but that doesn't look so nice under your tablecloth. So just a, just a simple thing, but really makes a difference. Multiple levels. We... Oh, why don't you switch them for me? <laughs> so multiple levels, we, we built a shelf this year that we can stack things on top of and below. Another principle is stack it high and watch it fly. And you may have heard that before, but we have found that to be very true. And say you only have 20 bunches of kale and you only sell 15, sometimes the mentality for a farmer who wants to not have waste is to take less next week. Oh, well, we only sold 15, so let's only take 18. Well, the fact of the matter is if you took more, you would sell more. So instead of taking only 15 bunches next week, take 40 bunches and you will sell it because nobody likes to take the last one. Even when it comes to strawberries, we will sell, 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 but when it comes down to two pints, those two pints might last two hours. So take a ton and put a ton out. Don't hold back. Put it all out, and it will sell. Produce quality, you know, making your stuff stand out as being the, clean, the most cleanly produce there, the freshest produce there. We, we take our stuff in bins that keeps them fresh, but then when they're on the table, especially on a hot day, they'll tend to wilt. And so we will take ice in a sprayer, and we'll put ice water in the sprayer and continually be misting them. That way it makes things stay and look fresh and be attractive and appealing to customers who are coming to buy. Signage is very important. Branding your farm so that there's something different about your farm and everybody knows that this came from Bountiful Blessings Farm. Having a prominent logo, dis, um, your farm name on as many things as possible and having a consistent style. We've chosen a very rustic style. Um, also having farm information. I was meaning, I brought a farm brochure, but that was one of our, our biggest successes this year was we made a trifold farm brochure and in it, we told a little bit about each member of our family, what our roles were on the farm, so they got to know their farmer. And the connection to the people really brings people back, that personal connection, getting to know people. It was also a great witnessing tool because in it, we said that we were Christians, and we told a little bit of why we do this. And so immediately when people got the brochure, they realized that we were Christians. And that opened up some amazing 
um, communications with people, spiritual topics that would not have come up otherwise if they hadn't seen the brochure and hadn't, you know, because farmer's markets, they're fast-paced, and sometimes you don't get to put in that spiritual word all the time that you really would like to. And so having something that they can take and that they can read at home, there at market, and see they're Christians, that was a wonderful witnessing opportunity. We didn't print near enough. We ran out like halfway through the season. The demand for people to take them and take them to their friends really exceeded our expectations. We had one market customer at uh, actually our smaller market and and uh, her, her kids especially opened this brochure and we have each of our pictures and names and a little bit a little paragraph about us and this little kid like memorized us and we'd come to market and her mom was like which one's that because we would alternate at that market and she's like that's Nick <laughs> And, you know, it provided this great interaction that, um, you know, they don't know our names and now they know our names. I was just going to make one comment on the signage. Um, in our farm, this is something that I feel like we have a lot of room to improve. We have basically two things that have our name on them. We have this wooden sign that we put um, out in front. It's kind of small. It maybe stands up to about here. Um, but we have also have a, a burlap um, piece that hangs over a table, kind of a, a tablecloth um, that we've painted our logo on. But the other farms that are at our market have quite large banners that you could see from, you know, the opposite side of the market and say, oh, there's there's um, Delvin Farms over there. And I think it's really important that somebody coming to the market can see, like, oh, there's there's Bountiful Blessings Farm or what your whatever your farm name is from a distance and. And you know can walk away knowing what you know they can't miss the fact of what stand they're at. They're not just at the stand with the pretty produce or the the young kids as we're kind of known at our market. <laughs> so another thing we have is a large chalkboard that we set out. At, f at the front of our market stand because at this market we will have lines and lines of people and so a lot of times people don't even know what we have unless they get in and sometimes they don't want to wait in line to see if you have tomatoes left and so we will have a big chalkboard out front where we'll write everything that we have for the day and we also change it for the seasons um, and so also not only can people just walk by and glance and see what you have and then see what the other people have they might come back or it also, what we'll do is we'll mark off the things that we run out of because we sell out quite quickly. And so people come by and see, oh, they did have cucumbers, but they no longer have cucumbers. I need to come earlier next time. So it just lets people know what you have without them having to go through and see everything. Um, having adequate price tags that they can read and see clearly this way they don't have to ask you and they're more, they're more apt to buy something that they don't have to ask the price about. Um, specific name varieties, everybody is interested in the history behind the variety. And so when it came to our tomatoes, we did little tags with exactly the variety and where it was from. So this is an Italian heirloom. And knowing as much of the history about the variety really helps the sales. Because people will come, they want to know, well, how does this tomato compare to this tomato? So taste-wise, and then also, well, how did this tomato get its name? And so you really have to know the produce that you're taking to market. It also gives them familiarity with that one product. So if they know that they got uh, Valencia, they can come back and know that they can get a Valencia again, and it should taste like that. Our, our favorite name of the year was a tomato called Tommy Mari Muchu. 
and we love telling our customers about that one. Um, one thing that we didn't even put on the slides that we have just begun to enter into as far as marketing goes is, is the social media side of marketing. We, we um, started up an Instagram account because both of us are into photography and have our phones with us all the time. And so we, we even wrote on our little um, chalkboard um, what our hashtag was for our farm. And we ran a special. Um, not many, many people took advantage of it, but we're, we're trying to improve this. But if they, if they posted a picture of our produce with our hashtag, that they could get a free item next time they came to market. And it should try to increase because these people have wide circles of friends out there. And if they post a picture that says, man, this delicious tomato sandwich, got it from 12 South Market, Bountiful Blessings Farm, you know, it just it gets the name out there. And I think that's a great, we're, we're just scratching the surface of that. Um, you know, we have a Facebook page that people can like. You know, we're, we're still, we're, there's lots of things to work through on that. But social media, I think, is a great way to get the word out there. Um, another aspect of that of uh, a farmer's market layout is the efficiency and the traffic flow of your tables. Um, we don't claim to have the perfect system, and I think there's a lot of different options that can be good. Our option, uh, the way we have it laid out, you can we'll see a little in the picture. It's kind of just like a U shape, and the people walk in the open side of the U. This year, we expanded and made it about a, an extra ten feet wider. Probably, um, we we put up two canopies and. And we kind of have the, the stuff along the edges, and people can buy their stuff and then come to the middle for their checkout line. And, and yeah, a big part of that is having multiple checkout lines, especially at, you know, at the beginning of market. Um, for us, the beginning of market is the biggest rush. Some of you, it might be the end of market. Um, if, you, if there's a multiple, you know, sometimes we'll have three lines going at the same time, because if you have people standing in line for five minutes, you know, you, you don't want that kind of influence. Yeah, I was just going to say, if people have to stand in line too long, that's a real deterrent. And so being able to get through people as fast as possible is a key. And one of those ways that we, a practical thing we did this year as opposed to last year, last year we had just a, an envelope that we would have cash in and during the craziness of market, you know, it's just all jumbled of bills everywhere. Um, some of the boys uh, got a cash drawer working for us this year. You know, that's probably not a new thing to all of you, but that's been so helpful to just have a very convenient, very accessible place to split the denominations of your money and to, to run through people quickly. The, um, the last thing that we're going to spend just a few minutes on is, is Square Register. And how many of you use Square at your farmer's markets? Okay, not too many of you. Um, maybe you're familiar with it. It's the, it's the little credit card reader that you can stick in your phone or your iPad and allow you to take credit card sales. Um, just that fact alone is, is a pretty awesome thing for you to be able to do at market. They charge 2.75%, um, yeah, 2.75%, which is, which is pretty reasonable. Um, if you make one, you know, or two extra sales throughout the day. Somebody says, oh, do you take card? No, I'm sorry. Okay, never mind. I'll, I'll go somewhere else. You know, you've paid for it. Um, and people are oftentimes willing to pay more if they, if they use a credit card. Um, so that feature aside, I'm just going to switch over here to just show you what it looks like. Um, I think it should be. Oh, just a sign out of it for, for our account. Um, we, you can do that on your phone. You can do that on your iPad. 
Um, but particularly when you go to the iPad, there's a more full-featured version of the app called Square Register. We have them, we, we bought these cheap little stands, and so we have our iPads on stands at our farmer's market. Um, the main reason we did this, when I kind of thought of the idea, was to speed up our process. You know, when somebody has, you know, I have this many tomatoes and, you know, three heads of lettuce, you're trying to calculate in your mind, okay, that's $4 for that. And I say, yeah. Oh, yeah, that, that, that variety is called Valencia. And oh, how many people, how many, you know, it just gets really confusing. And, and it gets slow if you have to re-add up things. So the way that Square Register can work is that you can input all of your different items into its, its item library. And for something like um, a bunch of beets that is always going to be $3, you know, no matter what they do, you can set it up so it has a fixed price. So it's, you tap on beets and it adds it. Okay, here we go. Okay, so this is, this, is what, this is what the square register looks like. And you can see we have it set up with a grid of, of different items. We have a couple different pages of stuff. Okay, we'll at least just show it here. It may not change on us. So anyway, so you see we have tomatoes. Tomatoes you don't sell at, a, at the same price every time. It's by weight. So you can, you can oh, there we go. So we ha you can set that up as a variable price. So you just tap it. You weigh your tomato on the scale, you punch in the price, and there's tomatoes. So you can, somebody can come through line, and you can, they have their bag of produce, and you can go like this. You're like, you know, so just show me what you've got. You've got a bunch of radishes. Um, let me weigh your green beans. You've got $2 worth of green beans. You've got some eggs. You've got the $6 dozen, and you've got a bunch of garlic. So you can have multiple items if you sell garlic by a larger bunch or a smaller bunch. This person just bought one bulb, so we'll just add one bulb. There's your total right there. And so you can tell them the price right away. Um, you don't have to run this through as a credit card. You can just run it through as cash, but you can know, you know, with, you can still engage completely with the customer because you're not trying to think about these numbers. And you've got the prices right here. And, you know, they say, oh, I want one more bunch of that radishes. Um, so you can tap on the radishes, add another bunch, you know, it updates it all as you go. Um, another great thing is, is when you hit charge, so it looks like our total is $17.50 here. Um, as you're trying to think, they hand you a $20 bill. Um, if you hit, if, yeah, you could be talking to another customer. Um, you just tap how much they gave you. Did they give you the $17.50 or did they give you $18? Did they give you $20? And let's say they gave you $20 in cash. And it tells you at the top there how much change to give them back. So again, it's just it's giving you more more time to interact with the customer. You can text or email them receipts at no cost. A lot of people actually like that for their record keeping. So that's just one aspect of it. It's we've found this the most efficient tool for us at farmers markets. The app is free. The only thing you pay for is is the 2.75 percent only if you run cards. You don't pay a dime for recording cash. So Alan's asking, have you found an effective way to swipe the cards? There, there's, there's a little bit of a, of a trick and a, and a good hand to swipe it. It's, it's not too difficult. They come out with a new card. I don't know if you have the new ones, the new readers. They're thin instead of thick. They've greatly improved them. And, you know, it, yeah, you can get as many readers as you want. The readers are free. We have, like, half a dozen of them. You know, they'll just ship, ship them to you in the mail for free. So if you lose one, you have a couple in your bag for market for Tuesdays and a couple in your Thursday bag or whatever. Um, 
So sometimes you have to swipe it a couple times, but it, it hasn't been too big of an issue for us. So that's just one aspect of it. But the other aspect of it that is really neat as well is, is um, for your record keeping at the end of the season. And let me just show you this briefly. So after the market's done, you come back, you come back and uh, either you're looking at your totals for the day or your totals for the year. Um, I just have a date picked up. This is the Square website now. Um, this is for June 24. It has a little timeline of what time of day you made, how your sales went. You can see that most of our sales happened at 3 o'clock. And then that peak at the end was a wholesale order we made to a, a high-end restaurant after the market. Um, you can see your exact figures of how much you brought in that market day. Um, we had some discounts. Probably that was for the, the upscale restaurant that we gave them a bulk discount price. Um, that's just kind of a, an overall summary, but you can look at your item sales specifically. So today we made we sold 24 bunches of basil and made $48 on the basil. So when it comes time for next week when you're, we're planning how much you want to harvest, you can look at, you know, right back at this sheet and say, oh, we sold 38 bunches of beets last week, so we need to harvest, you know, that many beets. And, it, yeah, well, that many plus more beets. That's right. Um, so you can do, you can sort it by all different, uh, you know, here's what we made the most of on market. Um, just like you can do this for a single day, you can do this for the entire season. You can set a start and end date and look at your whole summer and see, how many bunches of beets did we sell? How much did we make on beets at market? So besides being an incredibly efficient tool at market, it's also an incredible and seamless, easy record-keeping solution. So it, it's been huge for our markets, and, and we would encourage anybody, you know, you can pick up an old iPad, you know, a used iPad for not that much money out there. You can do it on your iPhone, but you don't have that nice grid display of just easy tapping on the different items. So anyway, that square register, definitely something I think that is worth checking out for your marketing um, that I think it can really fit in with, with any marketing scenario. Uh, questions? Yeah, yeah we'll take a couple questions. No, the software is free. The app uh, for the iPads and iPhones are free, um, as well as the website access. On the website, when you, if you go to squareup.com, that's the website, you can sign up for it, and you create an account, and they say, where would you like us to send you your first reader? They'll send it to you in the mail, and you can request as many more as you want to. You can also pick them up in Walmart, Staples, and they're $10 there, but when you buy it and register it in your account, they'll refund you the $10 that you paid. We can, we can make it available. We can make that available um, and somehow, and maybe we can, yeah, yeah, do that. If you want that, just, yeah, it, yeah, for particularly for the square aspect of the presentation, you can learn a lot from there. Yes. Oh, square actually also works with Android devices as well. I have no experience with it on tablets on running Android. Um, I don't know if what that looks like, but I've seen Android phones running square as well. So she's saying that in her area, there's a place where they have just basically farm stands set up 24/7, or you know, yeah, year-round. Are they manned? Do people are they are they unmanned? Well, no, that that works well for if if it can be on your farm. I say it works well. We kind of we went away from that. <laughs> 
because it's very disruptive to your life. You know, people always come at lunchtime. And so we, we used to have a you-pick strawberry farm. We, we got away from that, and we can talk to you more about that afterwards if you want. But um, so it is a good marketing technique, but it requires somebody being there all the time. And if it's not at your farm, then you've got a whole issue of getting there and all that. So, yeah, I just want to briefly mention, you know, there's, we just don't have enough time, but somebody has already talked about this. I, I don't remember who it was, but the fact, I think it was Byron, the fact that when you're small growers, you need to get as much of that produce dollar as possible. And the only way to do that that I know of is, is direct marketing. Um, you know, if you're bigger like Brad, you can get more into wholesale and, and make it work. But for the small guys, you got to direct market. And there's really two main avenues that I know of for direct marketing, CSA and farmer's markets. Restaurants are kind of, they're not, they're not wholesale, they're not retail, they're kind of somewhere in between. And, and they can be a good, good outlet if you've got good restaurants. But restaurants are a little finicky. You know, last year they wanted dandelion greens, and we didn't have enough. So this year we grew three times as much, and we couldn't sell them. So it's, you know, restaurants are trendy. Um, and so that's a downside to restaurants, in my opinion. But CSAs, somebody once said, and I think it's true, CSAs are kind of the graduate level marketing. You really have to be on top of your game to do a CSA. And so I would encourage anyone starting out in this to start at farmer's markets. You know, if you don't have the stuff, um, you're going to be hurt, but they're not going to be hurting. Um, and so... Yeah, uh, we, we would recommend focusing on those two and starting with farmer's markets. And then once you get a little more comfortable with it, you can move to CSAs. Okay, Bob. All right. You know, the other thing that I wanted to uh, mention about farmer's markets is uh, what you just heard was an excellent presentation. And I really appreciate uh, the points that were made. But, you know, there is a scale to farmers' markets, just like there are to, to our farms. And the scale that they were discussing involves... I'm sorry, I'm trying to get some, some slides up here, too, while I'm doing this. Uh, the scale that they were discussing... Thank you. The, the number of vendors... I don't know what the number of vendors at, at their market are, but uh, just at looking at, at what they took in as far as income, they probably have more customers in one day than we see at our market in two or three months. Uh, our market is very small. We serve a, a, a county that only has 7,000 in population, and we're at the far end of that county. Uh, but all of the principles that they shared with you still apply. Uh, uh, and uh, the other issue about farmer's markets that I want to mention is that uh, you can search your own farmer's market. You know, one of the challenges that people often uh, express is that most farmer's markets are on Sabbath. 
And in small communities, that can very well be the case. But uh, there's nothing preventing you from uh, talking to your local extension service agent, working through the USDA. The USDA is actually the, the umbrella organization that kind of oversees most farmers' markets, and they're very, very friendly uh, to the concept of starting new markets. And you can start a new market with as, as little as one grower. I don't necessarily suggest that because diversity in the market is also very important, but that is an opportunity for you. Um, Establishing relationships with the customers that we've had at the farmer's market has been crucial in our experience within our community. And that's one of the beauties of a farmer's market is you do establish an identity and a presence for yourself. It's an opportunity to witness. In our particular situation, we don't have a large population center. So the people that come to our farmer's markets are our friends and neighbors from right down the road. And we've been able to, by maintaining standards of high quality and fairness to the customer, and, and someone was saying yesterday that the customer is always right, whether they're right or not, they're always right. We have that philosophy too. And word spreads. Uh, the nearest population center to us is Charleston, West Virginia, about 60 miles away, and we have chosen not to travel to that market, even though it might be a little more lucrative for us, but we now have people from Charleston that are traveling to our market because our reputation has gotten out, and we have uh, uh, probably two or three dozen people that drive over 40 or 50 miles to come to our farmer's market. Because we're a rural market, we don't get the price margins that we could in a larger market, but also we don't have all the nuisance of travel either. So, you know, there are trade-offs, and each market is, is kind of its own identity. Uh, it establishes its, its, its own structure and framework and rules, uh, but the, the slide that you've got up here in front of you is an indication of how fast farmers' markets are growing. This is a, a slide depicting the growth in farmers' markets in the last decade. Uh, in 1994, there were 1,755 registered farmers' markets. Last year, there were over 8,000 in the country. This is a, a movement that is really booming and a real opportunity. And for novice growers, this is the place to start. And even if you're just a home gardener thinking about what to grow in your area, farmers' markets are also an excellent source of, in, of information about how to culturally uh, care for your plants. People wonder what varieties of stuff should I grow? Well, go to the farmer's market and see what they're growing because those professionals that are there have done the trial and error for you. And if they can do it successfully, you probably can too. So that's just a few words to add to what was said there. Along with farmer's markets in rural areas, sometimes electronic sales can be helpful. Uh, our farmer's market runs on Wednesday mornings between 9 and 1. Now, who does that eliminate from our potential list of customers? All the folks that are at work between 9 and 1, right? And we don't want to work on Sabbath, so our alternative has, to been, has, has been to use a, 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 an online uh, marketing service. And there are a number of different programs out there that can be used for this. We use one called locallygrown.net. And what this allows us to do is to uh, provide our availability to a customer list. We send out an email uh, once uh, uh, on, on Sunday evening, and the orders have to be to, to us by, by Tuesday. And all this software is already done for you. It's, it's very easy to build a store on this, on this website. And it functions a little bit like a CSA in that everything is pre-sold. And we have pickup hours at our location 
uh, uh, on Wednesday evening. So on Wednesday evening, on their way home from work, they can stop and we can we can uh, uh, have the benefit of those customers too. Uh, uh, the young lady over here was mentioning farm stands as being prevalent in her area. That's not so common around the country anymore, but oftentimes farm stands are, are very anxious to, uh, to buy produce and may either consign or, or buy from you in quantities or, or work out some arrangement with you so that you can market through them. Bear in mind that marketing takes time. A farm stand, if you're going to operate it, means that someone needs to be there. Otherwise, you're going to be interrupted. I don't even do on-farm sales at our place. In fact, I try to discourage it because when neighbors were right on a, on a high-profile corner in our county and friends and neighbors will stop by and say, hey, Bob, can I have a head of lettuce or can I have a couple of cucumbers? If I'm out in the back field working and I have to drop what I'm doing to go make a $2 sale, that's not very viable and not very sensible. So... Uh, doing on-farm sales, unless you've got an individual that is specifically dedicated to that, is something uh, that can be pretty challenging. Uh, I'm going to skip the other two items because they've already been kind of touched on a, a, a bit. Institutional buyers uh, for us are, 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 are good. One of the things that I will say about restaurant business and places like hospitals and nursing homes um, uh, is that the produce that they're using is going to be prepared and cooked. And oftentimes, they can be an outlet for your seconds. You know, uh, high-end restaurants are a different story. They want the best of what you've got because there's a snob factor in, among the foodies, and they want to appeal to that snob factor. But if they're just going to throw your tomato in a pot and cook it into a stew anyway, that potato, uh, that potato or that tomato that has a, a blemish may find a home at, uh, at, at another institutional buyer. And we use both hospitals, nursing homes, and restaurants for outlets for some of our seconds. The other thing I want to mention before I talk about the real uh, topic that I was asked to talk about are food hubs and aggregation. One of the challenges for a small grower is to have enough product to meet the demand of a hospital or a nursing home or even a school program like I'm going to talk about here shortly. Uh, food hubs are also growing dramatically around the country. I'm going to skip to a slide here. Uh, food hubs uh, basically are areas where you can aggregate your produce. You and your neighbor and the other guy that's growing down the road can put all of your produce together and provide either a wider range of offering for something like an online farm market or a farmer's market or an institutional sale. And uh, this is an area that is growing dramatically around the country too. If you talk to your local county extension service agent, he can probably point you in the direction of a couple of organizations in your area that you might be able to participate in. And this is particularly helpful as you're just starting to get going in the business. You may not have enough stuff to really justify going to a farmer's market yet, but you've got that extra bushel of potatoes or tomatoes or something you just want to find a home for. Some of these aggregation hubs can be an outlet uh, for something like that. We started one in our region, uh, 14 growers that were, I mean, truly micro-growers, uh, have formed an organization called the Mid-Ohio Valley Growers Association. And when they pool their resources, the sum of all that total uh, is, is a marketable quantity, and, and there's been some success in that. This is just a, a slide depicting the growth in regional food hubs. And one of the things that, uh, uh, that 
I want to talk about involve uh, basically what's on these slides. Once you've reached a point where you can maintain a good quality of production and a uniform and a safe product, uh, the third outlet that I want to talk about is the farm to school program. Any of you heard of that, the farm to school? Uh, this is a nationwide program that's sponsored by the USDA where the USDA actually has funds that they allocate to school districts so that those school districts can acquire locally grown produce. There was a meeting at the Pentagon a few years ago where the Joint Chiefs of Staff sat down and they realized that they were having to reject 66% of all the, the potential candidates that were trying to enter military service because their health was so poor. Get your mind around that. Two-thirds of our young people weren't meeting requirements to enter military service. They said, we need to do something about this. And that's something that they've kind of chosen to do has to do with Michelle Obama and all the effort that she's put into the school lunch program. But there are also some programs in place right now that you can take advantage of. And one of them is this farm to school program. Uh, the USDA essentially helps the school districts uh, source and purchase uh, locally grown food, reimburses the school district for that locally grown food so it doesn't come out of the school system's budget. Do you think that's a, a pleasant thing these days with the school districts? There's a lot of incentive here for them to buy product from you. Now, we have embraced this idea because the, the idea of getting our organically grown, wholesome, fresh, nutritious produce into the hands of our school kids that are growing up in our community is exciting to me. I don't know if that excites you or not, but that really gets my motor running. Because when these kids taste this stuff, they're hooked. You know, they're not going to go back to those Walmart tomatoes again after they've had a few of our heirlooms on their salad. When they eat our lettuce, they, they, they don't want that iceberg that mom brings home anymore. And they're putting pressure on mom to come to the farmer's market to get the same stuff that they're getting at school. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Now, there are some challenges with this in the sense that, uh, you know, you have, uh, you have to establish some relationships here. Many of the school districts uh, around the country uh, may or may not be aware of this program, so you need to educate yourself about it so that you can approach them. And I think, I'm sorry, I've got the wrong, I've got my, my wrong set of slides here. Uh, but I want, here we go. Um, these are a couple of websites you want, may, want to make note of. Uh, but in some instances, you're going to know more about this program than the school district itself. And the way to make an approach to this is to work through your county extension service agent or your local school district. Not the individual school, but the school district. And the person in that district office that you want to make contact with is the food service director. And if they know about this program, they'll be happy to see you. They'll probably embrace you and say, where have you been? I've been waiting for you to come through the door. And if they're not aware of the program, after you explain it to them, uh, and you can get all the information you need to do that from these other two websites, uh, they will be very happy uh, to embrace the idea of maybe making you uh, part of their supply chain for their local school. Now, when we talk, start talking about supplying a school system, that's a lot of product. Uh, we currently sell to schools in four counties around us. We have actually 26 schools that are willing to buy from us. 
And it's a little bit frenetic at times because it's almost like an auction. Everybody wants to get in line first. I send out an email on Sunday nights to the school service, to the food service directors, and it's, it, I, I just have this vision of a, of a big dog pile out there as they're trying to pile on the produce uh, to get to it first because we don't have nearly enough to service their needs. But they are so anxious to buy from us that we're, we're, we're oversold every week, or we have the potential to be oversold every week uh, because we can't possibly meet that demand. Um, the prices that they're paying is the next question that I usually get. Uh, we charge the school districts the same price that we get for our produce at our farmer's market, which is excellent. And it's a very competitive price, and here's the way that I've made the sale to them. Now, our farmer's market, again, we're not in a large urban area. We're in an impoverished county in one of the most impoverished states in the union. So we sell our produce at the farmer's market based on a competitive price with what those folks are going to be able to buy that produce from at Walmart. Our lettuce sells from $1.75 to $2 a head, even though our heads are twice as big. Uh, we don't get uh, a premium for growing organic in our market. But the way that I've been able to approach the school systems who are buying from U.S. Foods and Cisco's and large multinationals is that by the time the produce gets to West Virginia, about a third of it is spoiled. About a third of what they're buying is no good at all. So if they're pa paying $1.29 or $1.39 for a head of lettuce, they still come out ahead paying $2 for my fresh lettuce because it's all usable. And this was part of the way that I got my foot in the door with them, pricing-wise, was explaining this. And after the first or second delivery, then it's no longer a question. They don't even ask me what the price is anymore. I get phone calls sometimes, hey, Bob, do you have broccoli? Do you have cauliflower? Do you have this? Do you have that? And, uh, you know, they'll, they'll order it without even knowing what I'm going to charge them. Um, personal relationship here also is valuable. I don't suggest that you try to remain anonymous if you're going to sell to your schools. Uh, one of the first things that I did when I decided to embark on this was I invited all of those potential customers to my farm so they could see what my growing practices are, how I grow stuff, so they have some confidence in the level of safety of the produce that I'm growing. This is an important issue. Right now, there are no regulations on this at all. I don't have to carry insurance to sell to the schools. I don't have to be inspected or GAP certified or, or organic certified at this point. But all it's going to take is one or two sick kids, and that's going to happen. So it is important if you're going to sell to uh, the school system to be aware of the food safety issues that are floating around too. I don't think that we're addressing that in this conference, but uh, uh, you know it, it is important to, to make sure that you're growing your produce in a safe manner that, that will uh, will keep our kids from, from getting sick here. And one of those is gap training or good agricultural practices training. Uh, that's usually available also through your county extension service. So this is a real opportunity right now. Our desire, this is funded for another three years, even though we've had a change in, in Congress recently that might not be as favorable to this funding. Uh, the current program is funded for at least an additional three years. And I know that, that after that period of time, they're going to be so sold on what we're doing and uh, so pleased with the value that they're getting. And they're watching the kids eat produce now. One of the, uh, the cooks in, in one of the kitchens told me the other day when I was making a delivery, the kids are eating the salads. 
I can't believe it. The kids are eating the salads. And, uh, you know, she was just thrilled with the fact that, that what they're putting out there, they're taking. So our hope is that when that three-year period of time ends and the funding, the additional funding may not be available, we're going to have such a, a, a good business relationship established based on, on quality for them and value for them uh, that, that we'll still be able to continue uh, to do business. So that's a, definitely an opportunity that those of you that are already growing should look into. Uh, the other thing, uh, and those that want to get growing should look into as well, uh, season extension is a consideration if you're going to do this. Some of the schools do run summer school programs, so uh, some of these programs run year-round, but obviously the bulk of, of uh, the, the volume of business is going to be in the fall and in the early spring for most folks. We actually have Brussels sprouts that are, that are growing right now that we're hoping we'll be able to harvest in January uh, for this program to keep, just to keep some action happening. It's not so much that we'll have a wider variety of things for them, but you know, you want to, once you establish that, that business connection, you want to have a personal contact uh, to, to keep that connection viable. This is important at farmers markets too, by the way. You were talking about your, I, I was pleased to hear you talking about the family's profiles and how people are identifying you at the market. The, folks are seeking personal relationships these days. That's part of what this movement provides us uh, is, is an opportunity to really get to know people because they want that relationship. And whether it's a, uh, an institutional buyer or a school uh, food service director or the kitchen that's in, uh, the, the, the cook that's in the kitchen at the high school, all of them want to know you. They, this is part of this desire uh, in this local food movement is, to, is to, to get connected again with where that food is coming from. So take the time to develop those relationships and you'll find benefit too. All right, I may have time here for a couple of questions. You just cut me off when, when I need to be cut off, and, and uh, if there are any questions, I'll try to answer them. Yes, in the back. We haven't encountered that issue with the farm to school program. Her question was uh, she was trying to sell some tomatoes to, was it a mobile food market? A regular grocery store. Grocery stores are concerned about liability. Some of them will require what's called gap training that I just outlined. Some of them will require that you be insured. Others, others don't. Um, this food liability issue and food safety issue is of growing concern. Uh, we are looking at potentially some, some tighter regulation on, on doing institutional sales. Uh, but just because one market won't take it doesn't mean another one uh, uh, you know, doesn't mean another one will. So you just need to build those personal relationships. This is why it's important. Before I took any produce to the school, I had the school come to me. And I said, look, this is what I had as, as, as that food service director was walking around on my, on my farm. He was going, oh, wow, this is great. I want all of that. I want all of that. You know, and and uh, it really uh, it was very important that you establish that personal relationship so that they have confidence in you. Because, frankly, you know, they're just as concerned about pesticides and they're responsible for, our, uh, you know, for their customer safety, too. So if they don't know you, uh, your chance of, of developing a quick sale like that is pretty slim. Uh, there's a question over here. Sales taxes vary. Uh, his question was, when does sales tax kicks, kick in? Uh, sales tax laws vary from state to state. 
in West Virginia, we just repealed our sales tax law on food, so there is none. In other uh, states, that is either something that you can factor into your sales price if you don't want to deal with the headache of, of calculating it with every sale. Uh, there are a number of ways to, to, uh, to work with that. Question over here. Uh, yes, I'll let you know pretty much what they're looking for. Uh, I will say from my experience, the, 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 the safest way to approach the schools is with things that would typically be found on a salad bar. They want cucumbers, lettuce, tomatoes, especially cherry tomatoes. Uh, they will take uh, broccoli, cauliflower. Uh, we, uh, one of the things that I noticed they were buying from us was cabbage, and they were using the cabbage in a coleslaw. And one of the things that I'm a real champion for is kale. I mentioned that earlier. And the school systems didn't have any idea what kale was. In fact, the food service director had never eaten kale until my wife, Lanita, made him a kale salad that I took to him and said, look, this is an, an appropriate uh, substitute for, for the cabbage that you're using in the coleslaw, and it's, and it's healthier. But salad bar items are, are a good place to start. They will take things like sweet potatoes. They're looking for things with color, not so much white potatoes, but sweet potatoes and also uh, the winter squash. We're selling them winter squash right now, too. I think we're going to just call it quits for now. I know there are some more questions, but remember we have one more session to go, and that's going to be pretty open-ended to try to, to tie up all the loose ends we can here. Uh, just two things in closing I wanted to say. When it comes to farmer's markets, and, and, and Bob pointed out, it varies tremendously across the country, but if you're in, near a large urban area, you want to look specifically for producers-only markets. That is, is really where you want to be because they, they have regulations that everybody who comes to sell grows what they sell. If you go to a big farmer's market where they're trucking stuff in from all over, it's very hard to get the pricing that you need to get for your market. Second thing is just that those of you who were here yesterday, and I don't know where, they, there should have been more of those sheets, the, the resource sheets we gave out um, yesterday morning. They have a lot of the web resources we've talked about here on there. The square information, the website, the, Bob talked about the locallygrown.net, the online farmer's market. That information is, oh, oh, are they here? Okay. Could you pass them out to anybody that didn't get those? Raise your hand if you didn't get one of those. We've got plenty here. So take advantage of that. There's also a couple programs to help CSA farmers on there, um, Farmigo and uh, Small Farm Central. So there's a lot of good resources. That's one of the beauties of getting into this in this day and age. There's a lot of things to help you out there. Both the government and private organizations, they're doing your advertising. So it's really exciting. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.